Good morning, all. It's great to see so many of you in this room today on this beautiful January the 9th. Welcome to those of you watching from home as well. It's great to be with you here this morning as well. We, I'm starting a new series this morning introduced by that brief video Jason mentioned. And on our core beliefs as a church, talking about our theological beliefs. Now, let me give you a quick rundown of what they are. We're not going to talk about any of them this morning. But let me just give you a look at This is right off our website, what we believe. What we're going to talk about over the next many weeks. The Bible, okay? Uh, What do we mean by the Bible? As an authority. What does it mean that the Bible is an authority in our lives? The Trinity, right? Now, what does that mean? It's not just some, you know, um, abstract idea. It means that my salvation, your salvation, should be experienced through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The nature of Christ, the heart of our faith. The nature of man, big subject in our culture today. The atonement, which is the heart of the gospel. Do you and I know what it means in our lives today? The resurrection, not just Jesus' resurrection, of course, but our resurrection, which comes out of it. The future, the Holy Spirit, which is the power that brings the gospel alive in our life today, life after death in the Christian life. So these are what we're going to talk about. These are, as I say, our core theological beliefs. We share this with many churches, but the question is, do we know them, and are they things that we live, right? Are they part of our experience? Are they the change agents in our lives? So we're going to talk about over the next many weeks. Now, there's two reasons I chose this series on it, and today is really kind of an introduction. The first one is, why do this series? Why do it now? 2022 is Browncroft's centennial year, okay? Yeah, our centennial year, and the reason I want to celebrate, use this particular series is just to acknowledge something, that may not seem an amazing thing to you, but it should if you think about it, that Browncroft has maintained its core commitment, its commitment to its core theological truths based in the scriptures, this old 2,000-year-old book, these same uh, um, core beliefs that Browncroft started with 100 years ago, it has maintained these beliefs based in the scriptures since 19... 1922, okay? Though we still believe those things, I still believe those things. As long as I'm your pastor, our board is our board, we will continue to affirm those things. That's an amazing thing and something worth celebrating. That is not true, by the way, of every church in the city of Rochester. And I'm talking about those that have been around 100 years. It's not true of every church in the country. Listen, two-thirds of all, let's say, Protestant churches in America over the last 30 plus years have plateaued, have declined, or have closed their doors, including some in this city. Many of them, not all of them, are what we call mainline churches. What are mainline churches? Methodist, Episcopal, Presbyterian of a kind, Lutheran, you know, maybe American Baptist, maybe some of you grew up in a church like that and found yourself at some point coming to a church like this. So many of them are mainline. The reasons why many of those churches have plateaued, have declined, have even closed, a lot has been written about this, is primarily an increased pressure, talking about mainly in the 20th century, of secularism, 
Secularism is a, is a, is a set of beliefs that, this, these, that the, the ideas of secularism, particularly as it was leveraged against both universities in America and seminaries in America. Ultimately, the pressure was that the churches would continue opening their doors, continuing having services, but deny the supernatural. Because to believe in things that are supernatural, like someone rose from the dead or walked on the water, those kinds of things that healed the sick and, and opened the eyes of the blind, this is, this is um, you know, seen as something sort of silly to believe in as a modern person. Okay? So this was the pressure that was put on many of these churches to deny the supernatural. The result was kind of a new version of Christianity, a version of Christianity that still meets as we are meeting here today, but one that denies the miracles, sort of excises out the miracles, doesn't believe in what we call personal conversion, and does not believe in the absolute trustworthiness of the Bible. Okay? They concluded, many of these churches, that the Bible does not determine what is right and wrong in a secularist modern view. A secularist modern view determines what stays or doesn't stay in the Bible. Okay? Now, this is what's gone on for many, many years in our culture. Here's the problem with that. When you de-supernaturalize Christianity, I get that it's unusual that we believe that somebody rose from the dead, that somebody walked on water, that somebody ascended into the heavens. I believe these are, these are amazing beliefs. These are not beliefs. This is not common sense. You don't wake up someday and believe that, that there's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that you believe in supernatural personified evil. This is not common sense. It's revealed truth. But if you decide that the supernatural elements of the Bible are sort of beyond the pale, beyond common sense, and you want to de-supernaturalize Christianity, what you are left with is not Christianity. The reason many of these churches, and this is not just me speaking, many, many books have been written about this. The reason many of these churches have declined, have plateaued, have closed their doors, is not because they changed their music programs. It's not because of their beautiful buildings or their unspectacular uh, buildings. It's, it's for one reason and one reason only. They stopped preaching the gospel that helps connect people to a transcendent God with a gospel that can, that can forgive you of your sins. Listen, if that didn't exist, what would be the point of going to church? Okay, what you're left with, there are still some good things you are left with. Love your brother, love your neighbor, right? Don't steal, don't cheat, don't commit adultery. All that's still good, but the, you can get that at the United Way, you know? You don't have Christianity anymore. You don't have Christianity anymore. Now, that's the first reason we're doing this series, really to celebrate, not just Brown Cross Centennial, but more importantly, to celebrate what we stand for and what we continue to stand for, even in a world that's become more and more uh, moving in a different direction. Second reason, perhaps the more important reason, is there are a new set of secular ideas that have come into the church, including churches like ours. See, so I mentioned the mainline churches. The one church, okay, that actually continues to grow in America our churches, there's different names for them, and some of these names throw us off, right? Like the word evangelical at times. But churches that believe in the Bible and the supernatural 
truths of the Bible and the life-changing gospel of the Bible, churches like that are the only churches that have continued in an over-incredibly secularized nation to grow, okay? They continue to grow. But there is another set of ideas that have come into churches of our kind too, ideas that do not call for an outright rejection of orthodoxy, right? That say you need to stop believing in the resurrection. But they call, listen very carefully, for a preference for subjective truth over objective truth. Okay? It's very popular in our secular culture. What do you mean, Rob? It means this. That what God says about me, right? Human identity is a matter, is one point of entrance to this subject. What God says about me is not so important. It's what I say about me. That's what I mean by subjective truth. This is rampant in our culture today, and it's found its way into the church that we live in. Scott McKnight, probably one of the most well-known, one of our, one of our, our greatest thinkers and writers in the New Testament professor said these words, if you know Scott McKnight. Evangelicism's bigger problem, so in the middle of a discussion he had, it was an interview, is that it has, evangelicalism, I should unpack that word, is one way to describe, okay, one way to describe churches that believe in the, in, in the gospel, the evangel, and believe the Bible is the word of God, and believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, etc. Okay, it's one way to describe it. Evangelicalism's bigger problem is that it has increasingly displaced the Bible as its foundation for knowing what to think and how to live and has supplanted it with an experience, with experience, desire and preference. In other words, it has surrendered its heart to personal freedoms. Okay, this is the more insidious kind of secularism that's coming into my life, your life, into churches like Ours. I think this is our greatest enemy, but it's also our greatest opportunity, which is why I invite you, this is just the beginning, end of the beginning, but invite you to join me and us to start with our core beliefs. Not just what are they, like it's a multiple choice quest ch- test, but do, are they are they sinking into your heart? Are they into your bones? Do you know them? Can you talk about them? Are they changing your life? So it is our greatest challenge. It's our greatest enemy. It's also our greatest opportunity. Now, today what you're going to get in the few minutes I have left is less of a sermon. Okay, I usually give sermons and more of a few important words from your pastor as an introduction. This is an introduction on why our faith and our church or the church, I should say, are more important than they have ever been, okay? Why our faith, talking about the faith, the Christian faith, our our, our values are just reflective of the Christian faith, hope you get that, why our faith and the church are more important than ever, okay? So that's all you're going to get from me. A couple things. Number one, reasons why. There is so much more for you and me to know. There is so much more for you. And what do I mean by no? I'm talking about in your relationship with God and in your relationship with Jesus Christ, right? This is our summary statement of of the Bible's mission, Browncroft, a life-changing relationship with Jesus. Now, that sounds kind of quick and 
in, in bite size, but there's a lot of truth there. What does it mean to be a Christian? It's not about doing seven things and not doing seven things. It's about entering into a relationship with God. The, the, the most common analogy in Scripture for to be a Christian is the covenant of marriage. And it's imperfect, but it's the best the writers of the New Testament could do. It's saying, listen, it's an all-in. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a lifestyle. It's, it's giving your all for another person. It's a sacrifice. It's, it's, it's doing your best over the course of the life that you have to learn something about another person. But when it comes to a relationship with God, there is so much more for you to know. What it means to be in a relationship with God is to be overwhelmed over time by His love by his truth, by his power, okay, over the course of your life. One verse of Scripture. I'm going to do look, I am looking at a few verses of Scripture. Romans 11.32. Just follow me this morning as best you can. There is so much more for you, whether you've been a Christian for a year, a month, or 40 years, there is so much more for you to know about your relationship with God. Romans 11:32, one verse. For God has bound everyone over to a disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Why am I using this first? For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. That one verse of scripture is the summary of the greatest theological, the richest and deepest theology in all of the New Testament, which is the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. The richest, the deepest theology written by anyone in the New Testament, in this case the Apostle Paul, is the first 11 chapters of Romans where Paul describes basically two things. What is the gospel, right? What is the gospel? It was brand new 2,000 years ago. What is the gospel? It is that God sent his son, who's also part of the Trinity, we'll talk about that in a few weeks, where God sent his son God the Son, the Son of God, into the world to live a life you could never live. I'm talking about perfect, in skin and bones, right? And to die a death that you deserved. What is the gospel and the rest of those chapters up to verse, chapter 11 is going to talk about how does the gospel actually change your life? The gospel didn't come just simply to forgive you of your sins and ultimately give you a promised hope in heaven. It does that, but to change the life you're living today. How do you ingest the gospel? How does the gospel change your life? That's what the book of Romans is, the first 11 chapters. I say it's the summary statement, verse 1132, because chapter 12 through 16 is sort of human relationships. How does it work itself out? But the theology of the gospel is here. It's one verse. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he might have mercy on them all. Summary, a paraphrase. He shut them all up in disobedience. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So that he might have mercy on them all. That's a summary of everything that's at the heart of the gospel. That's why he says everyone. He shut everyone up. In disobedience, if you read the whole uh, first 11 chapters, he's saying everyone in the sense of Jews and Gentiles because that's what the gospel brings together. Jesus Christ came and said, listen, a relationship with God, the love of God, the covenant of God, even back in the Old Testament, it wasn't just for one group of people. It was for all people. And he says, let me give you the summary statement, all of sin that comes short of the glory of God. 
But God has shut everyone up into disobedience. That's what you learn when you come to the Bible. If I just had the television and the internet and, and popular media, I would never know that. I'd never even know I was a sinner. God has shut everyone up in disobedience so that he might open up his mercy to everyone. Let me give you the Bible's view of identity. And let me just say this. You're not going to get this on television. You're not going to get this at the academy. You're not going to get this on the internet. You're not going to get this in books. You're not going to get this in popular media. In fact, many, many cases you're going to get the opposite. That's why this series is so important. The Bible's view of identity. You are more sinful than you dared believe. But you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope. Okay? You are more sinful than you ever dared believe. It's scary sometimes when I think about the capacity of my own heart and mind. But I would never know that if I wasn't looking in the mirror of God's word. But you are more loved and more accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever, ever, ever dared hope and you'd ever learn from anything other than the book I'm holding in my hand. That's the main purpose of the gospel. Okay? Has it reached you? Has it changed you? Okay? Is it changing you? I was reading yesterday. We talked about our habits journal. Pete mentioned this, about our Bible reading plan. I was just reading yesterday. Matthew chapter 8. If you're reading 365 with us, I hope you are. Yesterday was Matthew chapter 8, Genesis chapter 8. You know, Matthew chapter 8 ends two quick stories. One is the disciples in the boat, right? If you know that story, they're scared to death. Jesus is sleeping. And then after that, right after that, the next story is Jesus goes to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. You might call that the wrong side of town in the sense of um, very non-religious people, the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. There's two demon-possessed men. Jesus heals them. You know this story? And he takes the demons in them and he puts them into the swine. Maybe you know this story. And the swine, which was quote, the economy of the small town, is drowned in the sea. And when this is how that little story ends. The town comes out instead of saying to Jesus, listen, Wow, these two demon-possessed guys, they're sitting in the clothing in their right mind. Will you stay here and be our mayor? You know what they say? Jesus, get out of town. And I thought to myself, what's the point of these two stories juxtaposed together? Here's what it is. The world is full of fear. You see? Even though Jesus did an amazing thing, they were so captured by fear. And even the disciples in the boat, Lord, we're going to drown by fear. So what did I do? Right? Pete just talked about a relationship. I, this is what I did. I hope you do this. I just looked at those tutorials and said, God, Lord, overwhelming with your love, overwhelming with your truth, overwhelming with your power, help me in a world that's full of fear. As a person, as a Christian, as a pastor, help me to get up on my feet and go out into the world and say, I have greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Okay? That's what you need to do. That's what I need to do. There is so much more for you to know. Let's read the rest of the doxology. Now this is a doxology, verses 33 to 36. What's a doxology? It's a fancy word to say the poetic close of Paul's theological treatise, the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. Oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So it's for poetry. How unsearchable are his judgments 
and his past, watch, beyond tracing out who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has ever given to God that God should repay them. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a doxology, a poetic close, because he's done, in a sense, with this great theological opening. Then chapter 12 says, now how do you live it out with your neighbors and friends and your family? Okay. Let me just point out two quick things in this. Under the title of, there is so much more for you and me to know, mature Christians included. Two rhetorical questions. Let's look at verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? How is his, his, his judgments are unsearchable. They're beyond tracing out. What's the, it's a rhetorical question. What's the answer to that question? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Nobody has known the mind of the Lord. Okay? That's what he's trying to say. Don't, if you're trying to figure out what the gospel is, if you're trying to make sense of God, if you're trying to say, how does this work? How could this possibly be true? You will never figure it out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Quote from Isaiah chapter 40. Or has been his counselor. However, if you're a note taker, write 2 Corinthians 2.16. The, the apostle Paul will quote Isaiah 40.13 in another place in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where he's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, which we'll do in six or seven weeks, and he says this, who has known the mind of the Lord? That they can be his counselor, question mark. And then he says these powerful words, but we have the mind of Christ. He's saying, guess what, Christian? You're not going to know every last thing that God has, to, but you have access to the mind of Christ. Okay? So you do, I do, if you're willing to do the work, if you're willing to to invest yourself in your faith. Second rhetorical question, verse 35. Who is given to God that God should repay them? In other words, if you think being a Christian is a deep, making a deal with God, you don't understand what the Christian faith is all about. He has shut everyone up into disobedience. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I am more sinful than I ever dared imagine. Right? so that he might open up himself to God's mercy. But I am more loved and more accepted in Jesus Christ than I ever dared hope. No one can repay God. For from him and through him and for him, are all, and it was all about him. James Dunn, another great, great thinker. He just died in 2020, one of our great theological minds. The reserves which God can draw on for human benefit are limitless, and no Christian has ever begun to experience their full potential. That's what I'm trying to say to you guys. There is so much more that you can know, but you're not going to get that message from your culture. You're not going to get it from your books and your movies, and if you're spending more time there than you are here, then don't be surprised if the life that the Bible speaks of is not the life you're living, okay? Point two, there is so much more for us to do. Another verse of Scripture. As I say, this is not a sermon so much as an introduction. There is so much more. What do I mean by do? Discipleship. That's what I mean. The work of the church is discipleship. Read these verses with me again, or that you've seen before. Then Jesus came and said to them, who, the disciples, who did they represent? The church. 
All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. You've heard that verse a hundred times. Slow down for just a few minutes with me. It's interesting to me when Jesus is giving the charge. So this, is, this is the mission statement of the church. It's the mission statement of our church. Just you know, slightly different words we might use in, in, our, in, our, in our summary statements. It's the summary statement purpose of every church that's a Bible church. Okay. But it's interesting to me, because this is Jesus launching the church post-resurrection, about to ascend into heaven. He doesn't use words that you might think he would use in a great sort of missionary text. Missionary, right? Go out and, and spread the gospel. He doesn't use the word preach. He doesn't use the word convert. He doesn't use the word win here. Go convert the world. Go win the world. He says, disciple the world. Disciple, that's a, that's a very um, deliberate word. Let me say something else about the word disciple. Drives pastors crazy sometimes, but it's a very slow word. Okay, it's a slow word. You know, what, you, know what, you know what, here's a couple paraphrases for a disciple. To make students of, to go to school, to educate. Let me ask you this question. Are you a student of Jesus? I'm not asking if you're a Christian. I'm asking if you're saved. I'm asking if you're born again. Those are good questions. Are you a student of Jesus? Are you going to school on him in your life today? Are you being educated? Now is another slow word drives pastors crazy, teaching them, teaching them. Not only is teaching a slow word, Jason just prayed for the teachers, uh, right, Kristen, where did I see you? It's a slow word, isn't it? But you know what else is slow? Teaching them, you know, to tie their shoes. Oh, wouldn't that be great? That was the Christian life was. Teaching them, wait for it, to obey everything I have commanded. That's a slow word. That's a really slow word. Teaching them to obey. And by the way, everything I commanded, we're unpacking all this for you. If you want to know everything that Jesus commanded or the teachings of Jesus, it's the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, everything in there. Of course, it's all the epistles because all the epistles are, right? The, The letters like the Romans we just read, they're just the fleshing out of the words of Jesus. Okay? So it's all of it. Am I a student? Are you a student? Let me say this quickly. I'm running out of time here. We just hired a new discipleship pastor. Some of you don't even know what that is probably, you know, uh, because, you know, these are, these, are, these are summary terms. But that process, John Amayo happens to be his name, but John, um, that process has been going on for a couple years. It wasn't like necessarily fill in the slot, you know, the, the pastor retired or got sick, we're going to get a new pastor or a new worship guy or a new youth guy. I mean, these are more common categories that we often have in churches. But the discipleship pastor is something that came out of something your board had done, your, your stat lead staff had done for really a couple years. We, we, we got in this going back, you know, a couple year, a year or two before the, the, the pandemic, and we said, we got together some leaders, and we, and we said, let's just take some time. Let's get away and, and really examine our ministry. Where are the gaps? What do we need to do? And we, we came to this greater new clarity, this new sense of commitment that said, listen, our primary work is discipleship. It's making students 
It's making followers of Jesus. It's people who are learning the commands of Jesus, doing this slow work. And we said, we need to bring some more leadership here. We need to refocus our ministries and take everything we do with students and adults. And how are we helping them make better students of Jesus? Creating environments. That's what this is about. Just one idea, the four habits. It's what Rooted is about. Those of you who have done it, just a little over 500 people have done that now, looking at the spiritual disciplines, looking at practices in the context of community. And I would say to you, this is just the beginning. Consider this an inaugural message. My hope is that every room in this building over the course of every month is going to be used, right? We have to wear masks, we'll, we'll do what we need to do, but there's no reason the Church of Jesus Christ shouldn't march on and do its business and have environments for people to be becoming students of Jesus and then helping to create other students of Jesus. We all ought to be discipling people and mobilizing ourselves into, a, into the world to do the work of Jesus in this community, okay? To do this community. Got a lot of work to do. There's so much more for you to know. There's so much more for us to do. And lastly, by way of introduction to this series on our core beliefs, the world desperately needs people who are fully committed to Jesus. See, we can't, you say, what's the relationship between this point and this series? I can't make disciples if I am not myself growing more and more as a disciple. See? Maybe some of the reasons we're not making more of a headway in our communities, our neighborhoods, our families, with our professional friends is because we ourselves are not disciples. Okay? Because this insidiousness that I talked about earlier, this idea that's snuck into our lives because we're being discipled, really, whether we say it or not, we don't use that word. We're being discipled far more by the culture than we are the Word of God. Say, so we might be churchgoers. I want you to be here. I want more of us to be here. Let's get back to church, friends. But this is just the this is just a this is just the beginning. An hour on Sunday isn't gonna has is is gonna, isn't gonna be able to stand up against hours and hours of a culture in various streams in your life that's telling you things that aren't true about what it means to be a human being, what the gospel is, and what life is about, and what the worldview is about. Okay. The world desperately needs people who are fully committed to Jesus. Now, let me say this quickly. Couple, I got a call from a couple recently. Said, I want to sit down, Pastor, I want to talk to you. Share a burden with you. A couple that's been in this church for many years. Uh, I know them casually. We never had a long sit down. We sat down and said, we just want to share a burden with you. They got a couple teenagers, and their burden was, you know, in so many words, the world kind of what I'm talking about. Man, the world's just, it's crazy. It's moving in a different direction, and, and, and we're just, we're worried about the church. Not just Browncroft, but the church in general, but including Browncroft. Are we, are we ready? Are we awake? What do we need to do, Pastor? What do you think? That's what our conversation was about. And it was rich. And I said in many cases, you know, I'm with you. As we talked about, I said, the way you describe the world and, it's, and, it's, and it's where it's going and it's in, in the culture, the movement of a culture, I said, I, I, I agree with you 100%. And I do think the church at times has been sleepy and indifferent and, uh, and, and maybe, you know, not very deep. And we need to do things better, kind of the sermon I'm giving you here right now. And then after this great conversation, the, the, uh, the wife of this couple said, you know, can I share a dream with you? 
that God has just impressed upon me. Just It's happened a long time ago, but it's been on my mind and my heart where God has kind of spoken to her. And I said, sure. This is her dream. She said uh, she was on the beach. And she was on the beach, and all of a sudden, she's walking into the water. The water just rose really high. And in, in instantly, in, in moments, all she could see was water. She couldn't even see her own hand. It was just water every direction. But she said, even though this happened and it was intense, she said, uh, Pastor, she said, I, I, I also at the same time was not in any fear. And I recognized, I felt, not only did I not feel any fear, I felt that there were people on the beach who were praying for me. It's a sense of calm. She said, and then, Almost immediately, as quickly as the water rose, the water receded, and I was now standing on the beach with the ocean behind me, and in front of me was the Roman Colosseum. <laughs> I thought maybe she went on vacation there. I don't know. The, the Roman Colosseum. And she said, as I walked closer to the Colosseum, I could see it was full of people from top to bottom. But as I walked in and got really close, I could see this. All the people on the upper decks were dead. And just the people on the lower decks and on the ground, they were alive. And she goes, I just shouted out. I know that I know that I know that Jesus Christ is the way. She said, as soon as I got done saying that, all these people streamed out into the water where they found healing and salvation. That's the end of the dream. Now, I, you know, people have shared these things with me before, and I, I, I received that, and that was just really, she was very emotional. They both were, and we went, talked about a few more things. We prayed, and we went home. But for, the, for, for some time after that, this is very recently, I just kept thinking about it. You know, this doesn't always happen. You know, uh, people share with me all the time, and I, 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 they don't impress me. And, um, you know, uh, God doesn't usually speak to, to, to me with my own dreams, not to mention somebody else's, right? That's not my way, you know. Uh, but uh, I just couldn't let it go. And so finally I just said to the Lord, Lord, are you trying to say something to me? Is there something about this that maybe matches something in your word that you want me to hear? This is what I came up with. Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. It's the verse I was impressed upon to look at. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. I don't know if when's the last time you heard a sermon on that, but here's, here's my point. That verse is the Bible's worldview. And I think God was saying to me, is it yours? Right? Is it yours? Because that was Jesus' worldview. It was Paul's worldview. I'm not so sure it's yours or it's mine. Verse 19. Paul ends this way. Pray for me also, he says to his congregation, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador, listen, in chains. Or as I'm in jail right now. <laughs> Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I 
should. Paul's saying, listen, this is the mission of the church. To go into a world, not my words, a dark world, morally dark is what he means. Spiritual evil, not my words, his. Okay? And to go fearlessly. He mentions fearlessly twice. Okay? God, help me to be overwhelmed. There's so much more I need to know that I might know your love, I might know your truth, I might have your power. In a world that's crouching in fear, may we go out like tigers towards them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this day. Be with us today, I pray. Help us, Lord, to take some time, maybe today, to consider the life that we have been given, to consider the reality that we are living today. Help us, Lord, draw us deeper into a more committed relationship with you. There is so much more we need to know about our relationship with you, so much more for us to do. Lord, help us begin with me, begin with us, that we might be people fully committed to you, ready, fearlessly to go forward in this world and serve you by making disciples of Jesus. And it's his name we pray, amen.